Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. And we are recording. And we have a small, small, intimate group today, but very, very opinionated and well-versed in all the topics. <laughs> East it's, it's, a, it's a very special blossom. <laughs> I feel like I feel like we go from feast to famine. Either we got like 20 people on the podcast or like, where's everybody? <laughs> well, don't forget, we have more more voices coming shortly. We do have more voices. Yes, we're doing something different and interesting this week. So you will see. Uh, but um, that's Bill Sutton there. Um, hitting the record button as usual. Hey, Bill. Hey, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And also with us is Joe Shaw. Hey, Joe. Hey, Annette. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And I'm Annette Hankel, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. So we've started a new series of discussions, and it's called Innovating Healthcare on the East End. And the first one kicked off on October 6th. And we had a, a group of medical professionals, and um, the discussion was really focused on the treatment of women's cancers. Joe Shaw, you were the, the moderator. And on that panel, we had Dr. Susan Lee, who is chief of breast surgery at Peconic Bay Medical Center, Northwell Health in Riverhead. Dr. Jules Cohen, who is a medical oncologist at Stony Brook Cancer Center. Dr. Francis Arena, a medical oncologist with Perlmutter Cancer Center at NYU Langone and Arena Oncology in Riverhead. And we also had Susie Roden, and she is president for the Coalition for Women's Cancers on the East End. So those were the four guests. And um, the discussion really did focus on women's cancer and and um, the advancement in treatment and um, resources and things like that. So Joe, do you wanna talk about the roundtable discussion, what we learned and how the doctors uh, responded to our to our questions? Yeah, we're really excited about this. It's a little three-part series and the format, you know, we're using uh, Zoom uh, to do the conversations so that we can, these are obviously very busy medical professionals. And it's worth pointing out that this series is sponsored by four different health organizations that are now on the, the East End. And I think that's notable all by itself right. that we have a lot more representation here than we used to have. And they were really eager to participate, if I understand correctly, right? I mean, they were really on board with, with the whole series. Absolutely. And we're going to be doing uh, two more of these events, and it's all going to culminate with actually a live event uh, in November. But this first one, I, I really thought was a terrific topic because um there's been so much focus on women's cancers in particular and the advancements that have been made. And um, it was a chance to really talk about the progress that's been made and, and how that benefits patients on the East End in particular. So, you know, that's where we started the conversation. And uh, I, I really wanted to just get from each of the people on the panel where they thought we stood is, is, is the, uh, is the theme of this conversation for real? We've made real innovations, right? So I started with uh, Dr. Susan Lee, who is uh, the chief of breast surgery at Peconic Bay Medical Center in Riverhead. This is a moment in the battle with women's cancers. We're making real progress, right? There's there's a lot to feel good about. What what are some of the things that you're most excited about as far as innovations in this fight? 
Um, absolutely. I think um, my specialty is breast cancer. So I want to specifically target that rather than just women's cancers. So if you look at breast cancer itself, um, it the um, because of um, screenings and innovations and treatments and um, the amount of survivors, people are actually living, you know, the mortality rate has decreased significantly. And um, that is attributed to a lot of these innovations. And not only that, you know, when it comes to breast cancer, it used to be very cookie cutter, everybody pretty much got the same thing. But as we with research, um, with um, um, clinical trials, et cetera, et cetera, and also finding the cancers early, we're individualizing the treatment of breast cancer so that not everybody's getting the exact same thing. And because we're able to target and individualize, I think um, we are helping patients to live longer. Um, there has been a lot more emphasis on screening. And the earlier you find the breast cancer, the more likely and the higher the chances of cure. So there's so many different aspects of it. There's um, the imaging aspects. We've gone from regular mammograms to tomosynthesis to adding um, ultrasounds to MRIs in certain specific cases. We've gone to genetic testings where it used to be just um, testing for BRCA. Now we do full panel testings. Um, and then in terms of treatment, there's always different um, innovations for chemotherapy. And I'll leave that up to the medical oncologists to discuss that. Even radiation therapy too, there's um, that regard. And then in terms of treatment, we're able to offer things, not just lumpectomies and mastectomies, but um, oncoplastic cancers, different types of reconstruction. So there's so many um, evolving changes. And that is one of the things with breast surgery is it's we, everybody works as a team and we work together to um, work on the combinations of different areas to improve cancer care and to improve survival. Dr. Cullen, you know, it's the same question, but I'm curious whether when we're talking about treatments, that's really where a lot of the innovations have, have we, we've made great strides in treating various women's cancers, right? Yeah, you know, I would say that generally speaking, there are two kinds of clinical trials. There are clinical trials to increase the efficacy of a treatment and also clinical trials to reduce the toxicity of a treatment. And, um, and fortunately in breast cancer, we've had both types of clinical trials. Certainly in, um, in the early stages of breast cancer, you know, we're, we're very successful with our current standard of care in terms of uh, providing cures for most women who come in with again, what we call early stage breast cancer, which would be breast cancer that's limited to the breast and to the local regional lymph nodes. Um, and so in some ways, a lot of our therapies have been, or a lot of our um, decision-making has been focused on how do we reduce the intensity of therapy when it's appropriate so we don't cause excess morbidity, excess um, toxicity and long-term side effects. So in some cases, again, when it's appropriate, we're able to do less surgery than we used to, less you know, more lumpectomies, hopefully fewer mastectomies, less um, less dissecting of the lymph nodes in the arm and reducing the risk of lymphedema and, you know, using radiation when it's appropriate, but not excessively. And the same thing with chemotherapy, you know, that we have, um, we have now various different um, tests that we can do to determine whether or not someone needs chemotherapy or whether or not someone can safely avoid chemotherapy. And again, you know, if for somebody who has a high risk cancer, either by virtue of the size of it or its lymph node involvement, or whether it's high risk,
risk based on its molecular profile, then we can give aggressive therapy, you know, both in all those different domains, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and so on. Um, but for patients who have a perhaps a lower risk breast cancer, hopefully we can spare them some of that, um, some of that aggressive therapy safely without, you know, compromising their cure rate. Um, you know, there's also, and, and maybe Dr. Arena can speak to this, you know, we, there's also a lot of research in the metastatic setting for patients who are incurable, you know, and who have disease that are, that is beyond the breast and the local lymph nodes, you know, and is spread to the liver, lungs, or bone or other parts of the body. And there, you know, the research is, is predominantly focused on improving the efficacy of treatments. And again, we have more and more treatments, you know, that are non-chemotherapy treatments that can be, say, combined with hormonal medication to make the hormonal medication work better and last longer. We have immune therapy that's appropriate in certain kinds of breast cancer. And again, we have a whole bunch of, of targeted therapies that are targeted at various molecular abnormalities that we are now able to detect routinely in, uh, in breast cancer. Dr. Arena, as a clinician, you're involved in a lot of this research. So the advances that we've gotten to this point are we going to continue? Are we seeing a momentum? Are we gaining on it? Uh, is, are there going to continue to be more and more innovations? We just scratched the surface. We just begun. And I think our whole understanding of what really makes up a cancer, especially in breast cancer, may be the highlight of what the next part of this century is going to really uncover. When we use the word breast cancer, we're using a collective noun. It is made up of at least a dozen different subtypes, and we're probably naive to think there's not even more of them. And what we're doing is sort of unraveling that onion, taking each level off, trying to figure out what is real, what is pertinent for that individual patient, and giving therapies that are really targeted to the cancer that we're dealing with in that patient. At one time, I can remember when I, I started out, I was originally at Sloan Kettering. I was their chief resident and then assistant chairman of medicine. Well, there were only a handful of therapies. There were only less than six or seven different chemotherapies. And I can remember very vividly waiting for the BOAC plane to come into then Laurardia or into Idlewild before it became JFK, waiting for a medicine that we will originally and call a number, and now we call it tamoxifen. And that was the start. That was revolutionary. Well, right now we have much more than that. We have the aromatase inhibitors and the pure uh, estrogen receptor types of modulators. We also have something called the CD4, CD6s, all of which are taking a layer after layer of that onion skin and peeling it back. So patients now have choices. We can now look at the patient truly as an individual and truly understand that breast cancer is not the same disease for everybody. And I think as we start to delve more and more into this, we're going to see that we use the word personalized medicine personalized treatments. What does the heck does that mean? Well, it means basically that we are starting to come to the recognition that each cancer is different and that we can unravel its code 
molecularly, looking at all the impactful mutations, looking at some of the ideas, how it may talk or intertalk with the immune system itself, and attack. Going ahead very specifically, not, not using a B-52 bomber and blowing the whole neighborhood out. You want a smart bomb that goes straight into the kitchen where the terrorist is making that plot for the patient. That's the future. The future is now. And I think with the help of so many different institutions, and I'm proud to be at one that is at the head of this, I think we're unraveling this quicker and more quick than I could ever have experienced or prayed for. Very promising. And we're going to circle back and talk about uh, genetic testing in, in particular. Susie Roden, so you are the president of the Coalition uh, for Women's Cancers at Stony Brook Southampton Hospital. I believe you're also a patient navigator with the Ellen Hermanson Breast Center. So you work with patients a lot. Are you still doing that? Actually, no, I recently retired. So I'm oh, not okay. at the hospital anymore, but I am still doing the Coalition for Women's Cancers, and I feel well, like I'm busier than ever. So you've done so much work with patients, though, and and I had mentioned to you uh, before we came on. We have some terrific experts on cancer, but in many ways, I think you're going to be our our biggest expert because you have been battling cancer for almost three decades now. You've been a patient. You've you've gone through the various treatments. You had early detection, which I think you have said you've credited with your, your being able to hold off the cancer as well as you have for 30 years. Talk about what you've seen through the eyes of being a patient and in working with patients, how this battle has changed uh, in, in the 30 years that you've been fighting it. Well, it's actually been more than 30 years since I was first diagnosed. And out here, there was absolutely nothing available. There, I mean, we didn't even have a breast surgeon out here. We had oncologists, but we didn't have a dedicated breast surgeon. And at that time, so many women weren't talking about their experience. It was sort of, a, you know, almost embarrassing to say you had breast cancer. And after, I would say about a year of feeling sorry for myself, I said, I can't let anybody else do this alone. Like I did it. And I started what was the South Fork Breast Health Coalition. And, um, you know, like the, the beginning, it was almost like a underground group of women sort of hush hushing saying, oh, you know, she has breast cancer, can you help her? And now I think most of our survivors are very proud of what they've gone through, how they've come out better on the other end. And the doctors, you're all brilliant, but, Joe, you were so nice. You said, I, I have heart. Our coalition has heart. Our, our theme is you are not alone. We are going to take this journey, do this road, whatever we can do to help you. And we, I write grants, we do fundraisers so we can help patients financially. We can help them with support groups. And we also have started about five years ago trying to make survivors thrivers. And that's what I've really seen. People are no longer hiding. And hopefully with the early detection and all these breakthroughs, we're catching the cancers earlier and we're having great, great lives. So my, my favorite to the doctors is what kills me is when a woman will say to me, I didn't know your organization existed. I could have used your help. So if the doctors, if your patient lives out here on the East End, 
have them call us. We're here. And an example is there's a, a woman who had breast cancer 15 years ago. She's now gone through a divorce. Myself and another volunteer took her to the surgery today because she had no one. That's what we do. She's actually spending the night here because she didn't want to spend the night alone. And another volunteer, a breast cancer survivor, said, I heard about it. I'm bringing over dinner. You know, mm. and what we are trying to teach our patients that it's okay to receive and that it will come around and then you will give back a thousand times over. And I believe that's part of our healing. And I, my point, Susie, is that's an innovation as well, right? That's something that's evolved in, in the last decade or so that, that really improves women's chances when, the, when they enter this battle. Exactly. And when they have somebody to talk to, when they have somebody to say, I know exactly how you're feeling. I mean, that makes a world of difference. It's a great organization and we're here to help one another. And, you know, last year I was diagnosed again with breast cancer and thankfully early detection all three times. But it was interesting because I had to learn how to receive again and you know, it was a nice feeling that everyone rallied around me. And now I'm healthy enough to, to keep my, my mission. So I think what's interesting is that a lot of what Dr. Lee talked about was the idea that they no longer have to hit breast cancer with everything they have. I think that it's become an ability in recent years to really finesse the treatment. I think for any woman that gets that diagnosis or anybody that gets a cancer diagnosis, the idea that they understand the type of cancer that you have better now and can only they only need to do a certain amount of invasive or toxic treatment in order to treat you instead of just, you know, there used to be those days when someone was diagnosed with cancer, you just got, oh, it's going to be this and this chemo and radiation and all that. It was the like the sword of Damocles, I think they called it, where, you know, it, you know, you, you, you had to kill the cancer, but in doing that, you caused a lot of damage to the body as well. And, and nowadays, you know, I think it's, it's really encouraging to hear the doctors talk about how far we've come and the fact that there, there is this sort of individualized treatment um, of once there's a diagnosis, but even above that, the advances in diagnosis are huge because, you know, as you know, with any cancers, but particularly with these women's cancers, uh, early detection is so important. And um, the advances that they've made in the technologies and the, the testing and in the treatment after it is, is really stunning. And to do really specialized treatment for individual patients, depending on, on what that diagnosis is. And you know, again, you said it earlier, you know, what, what might be good for one patient is not good for another patient. And rather than doing just this, this huge, um, you know, explosive treatment that, you know, that they, you know, one size fits all, um, you know, they can really individualize it, which I think is, is, is very cool and very interesting. You know, what's really interesting, and it didn't come up in our conversation, but I'll add this, that in doing my research ahead of this, one of the innovations that's coming eventually, apparently, is the use of artificial intelligence. And in using artificial intelligence, they may be able to create almost like a clone human in 
in a technological sense that they can create sort of your double and they can run experiments to see how certain treatments would affect you and have some feedback before they actually try that on you, uh, you know, in real life. And I, that's amazing to me, but it shows where we're going. It's very, very sort of on the border of science fiction. We've, we've read all the, the novels about some of the stuff uh, that, that they, they thought might be coming with medical stuff. And it's, we're really starting to see some of that stuff. So I thought Dr. Arena mentioning that we've only scratched the surface was to me sort of gave me a little bit of a chill that that's just an amazing thing to have a guy who's, who's in the healthcare industry say out loud um, because I wasn't sure when we talked to the experts, if they would be quite as um, effusive about where where things stand, and when you hear a guy who's involved in this kind of research say something like that, that we're really just starting to find the innovations, I, I just thought that was that was a bold type moment for me. That that I just thought, wow, that that is really proof of concept here that that we are at a really important moment when it comes to the innovations in battling. Uh, women's cancers in particular. And and I think that, that Susie Roden really put a point on that, somebody who's been, um, you know, not only fighting cancer in, in, in various forms for, for three decades, but also has has been this huge patient advocate that firsthand from from behind the scenes and in, in front of the scenes has has seen the advances over over the last few years and um, seen particularly uh, the, the medical community um, more prevalent on, on the East End so that patients don't have to um, go into the city if they get diagnosed or, or travel, you know, up island for, for their chemotherapy or radiation treatments or whatever the treatments may be that, that, that now it's, it's just a short ride, um, you know, to, to Southampton or Riverhead or, or, you know, whatever areas they, they are. I thought that that was, it's always, it's always good when you, you put that human um, uh, face on, on perspective on things. Hugely important point. And, and Susie mentions at one point in the event uh, that, that I had talked to her ahead of time. And I told her, we have these three doctors who are very clearly going to bring the medical information. I want you there for the heart. You're you're the heart of the conversation because you've seen it from both sides. You've worked with patients, and you've been a patient yourself for three decades um, and successfully. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations.
so talking about the resources out here was another big part of the conversation. But that I think is really interesting because, you know, for a long time, it felt like we were sort of at the end of a Long Island, literally, and with very few resources. And, and it was just very hard to um, get into a lot of places. So now we have a lot more medical options out there. And I thought that was a, a really interesting part of uh, the conversation, just cutting down on on the travel and the ability to see a range of doctors. It used to be if you had something like cancer, you would consider having to go back into the city for extended stay. Yeah, absolutely. And facilities. We've got so many more facilities here now uh, than we used to. And I think that was really um, one of the one of the driving factors behind us even doing this three-part series is the, the whole idea of healthcare in our region has changed so significantly in 20 years where uh, I don't think we could have foreseen this back at the turn of the 21st century. Uh, but we really do have so many more resources than we used to. So that was something. So we started to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, and again, I'll remind everybody that our panelists are Dr. Jules Cohen of Stony Brook Medicine, Dr. Susan Lee of Peconic Bay Medical Center, Dr. Francis Arena, who's a medical oncologist with NYU Langone, and Susie Roden, who's the president of the Coalition for Women's Cancers. Doctors, uh, and I'll start with Dr. Lee. Um, Susie had mentioned that for the longest time on the East End, but particularly on the South Fork, but really in the whole region, there weren't a whole lot of medical resources for treating cancers. Um, that's changed significantly, right? You don't have to go, when you're diagnosed, now, you don't have to go to the city to get the best treatment. Absolutely not. And that was my um, whole mission was I actually live out in the North Fork. So it is the East End. And I saw patients having to go west for all the latest. And so um, I, when I started the position or took on the position here, I said, put me out east because I want to provide a program that offers everything that the patient can get without having to travel further west. And that included things like um, reconstruction. Um, we're actually the only hospital on the East End, um, meaning e either Forks that offers what's called um, deep reconstruction. And what that is, is um, reconstruction using a patient's own tissue without using um, their muscles, which was um, an older version of it. Um, so I actually work with a plastic surgeon in um, offering reconstruction. We also do oncoplastic. And for certain patients, they can have lumpectomies and a breast reduction at the same time. Um, we do tissue rearrangements. So um, we have slowly in the last couple of years opened up a cancer center here, um, work with medical oncologists, radiation oncologists. As I had mentioned earlier, it's all a team effort. So we all communicate very well together and we col collaborate together. We do high risk screenings. We do genetic testings. Um, we have a high risk program where we follow patients who are at a high risk for breast cancer more closely. We do lymphedema screening using the latest innovation, what's called bioimpedance, which measures the fluid level in the arms so that we can monitor them for lymphedema after surgery and catch it when it's most likely and hopefully reversible. Um, so we're building a whole program. We have um, nurse navigators. Um, I have a nurse practitioner who also works with um, survival, um, a survival program. Um, and we work with the local support groups around here so that, again, we want to become or we actually are not becoming, but we actually are offering everything that you could potentially get without having to 
get on the LIE and go west. And, and I, I think, think that's, that's true uh, across organizations here. Dr. Cullen, changing the, ge- the geography is a big innovation, right? But having geography not be that limitation anymore when, when um, women were diagnosed with these cancers and they faced having to go back, if you lived on the East End and you had to go back and forth all the way to Manhattan, if you wanted to get the best treatment, when you remove that geography uh, from the equation, it really, it's an innovation all by itself. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, Stony Brook, of course, has a an actual cancer center now on the East End. It's called the Phillips Cancer Center. And, and um, you know, there's one full-time oncologist out there, Dr. Yarvakova. Um, and also we're recruiting actually for a second full-time oncologist. And then the rest of us who are predominantly at Stony Brook in, you know, uh, in Stony Brook, um, you know, we, we have rotated out there and we have spent some time out there seeing patients. And now there are a lot of discussions about continuing those rotations and, and hopefully we'll have perhaps dedicated days where the, uh, the sub subspecialty experts from the main campus at Stony Brook will come out once a month, once a week, something like that, you know, and provide a, a breast you know, cancer specialty clinic uh, in in sort of uh, collaboration with Dr. Yarvakova and whoever is the next oncologist who joins us. So, um, so you know, so we are definitely able to provide a lot of care um, out in on the East End. And, um, you know, so we, there's an infusion center, so we're able to deliver chemotherapy, any kind of infusional therapy. We have a linear accelerator and our radiation oncologists come out there as well. So radiation oncology, which is very sort of um, time intensive, you know, people go every day, five days a week for four weeks to six weeks, you know, and so on. It's very inconvenient to have to travel a long way to get uh, daily radiation. So now uh, it's much more accessible without having to travel very far. And then, um, you know, and again, we're in close contact with Dr. Yaravakova and with the Phillips Cancer Center. And so occasionally people will come and have a consultation with one of our sort of, again, sub-subspecialty experts like myself, uh, who does nothing but breast cancer. And, uh, you know, we'll ha- do the initial consultation at the main campus in Stony Brook, and then patients might um, decide to get their treatment over at the Phillips Cancer Center uh, with Dr. Yarvakova s- supervising them directly um, because it's closer to home and it's less of a commute and so on. Absolutely. And Dr. Rena, um, the, the technological advances go beyond just how patients are treated. This is allowing, I know NYU has been doing this for years. You're, a lot, you're able to communicate and share information among doctors in your system in a way that was just impossible not very long ago, right? And, and I have to think that's a huge part of why treatments have become so much more effective. Well, you know, it's, I'm glad you brought that up, Joe, because I think I've been coming out to the East End since I was a little boy. And that's a long time ago. And I can't tell you, the only thing that I loved, I loved it from the beginning, but there was a lot of potato fields. I remember when the first vineyard got planted and my dad said, I don't know if that's gonna ever work. But we've seen a change in the East End, not just for the hospital systems, but the, the people that live there, they're amazing people. But it's also now become a refuge, a place that the migration from the city and COVID probably has spearheaded a whole bunch of that. But now we are becoming a true 
metropolis, that is, on two forks. And what NYU has done, and I think this is so important, is that it has made a collaborative effort to bring the primary care physicians and the subspecialists into this network so that we can communicate to patients, physicians, of what's going on with them. We are now trying to make this not just, oh, go see the doctor. No, your doctor is part of a better system in which the communication, the chart is actually accessible. If one of my colleagues, Dr. Cornrich, is a phenomenal internist, can see a patient, he may say, Frank, please see this lady. And I can take a look and say, oh, before she sees me, why don't we get this test? That type of communication clearly is in other industries. But for medicine, this is sort of, oh, boy, did we open up a new door. And, and That's I amazing. Think what I'm pleased with is that if I see a patient in our Riverhead office, in seconds, I can call one of my, my colleagues on 34th Street and say, what do you think of that protocol you just started? This lady is perfect. It can help her. And that is that, that missing glitch here, that we have to tie all the dots together, put it all together into a seamless type of communication. And to me, that's what we're trying to do. So 25 years ago, when I had to do radiation, I lived in Watermill and I had to go either to Stony Brook Hospitals where I started and then to Brookhaven. And that was five days a week for almost eight weeks. And that took a lot out of me. And this time around, all I had to do was go to Southampton. It made the world of difference being able to have your treatment right by, you know, right by where you live, where you work. In, in addition to just that being more convenient for a patient, do you think it supports the, the effectiveness of the treatment? I'm asking you, Susie, as a patient. I think so. I knew I could just get up in the morning and 15 minute drive, I'd be at, at the cancer center and then I could go to work where before driving to Bridge, um, Brookhaven, I was tired, I had to find rides. It just took a lot out of me. I was, I was exhausted where this time around, it was like, this is, if I, it was the first time around, I would have thought it was you know dramatic, but this time I'm like, this is a piece of cake. And Susie, there was another thing that you may have mentioned or not mentioned. Back then, well, the first time you needed radiation, you said it was eight weeks. Well, right now, that doesn't have to be. No, I did it for four weeks and a day. That's right. It could be even less than that. Yeah. So what's it's, happening here is not just logistics. It's right. the science. It's the technology. It's the innovative nature that has happened happened at Northwell, it happened at Stony Brook, it happens at NYU, it happens at Sloan Kettering. What has happened is the medical community has now more tricks up its sleeve than it's ever had. We don't need to put a lady through radiation for eight weeks. No, and I didn't that's get- the, That's the message. The ladies that are listening, and the gentlemen that are listening, because gentlemen get breast cancer too. Bottom line is, 
It's not your grandfather's breast cancer. It's not your grandfather, grandmother's treatment that she had. And that is terribly important for everybody that's seeing this tonight to know that it's not just a convenience factor. It is the fact that we have started to change lives for the better. Definitely. Wonderful yeah. point. Dr. Lee? One of the things um, to um, add on to what Dr. Arena was saying, you know, he is with NYU, I'm with Northwell. So I have a wonderful team here of medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, plastic surgeons, but we are part of a bigger institution, which is very beneficial. So for instance, if we have a patient that has a positive genetic test, we can actually hook them up to the Northwell genetics um, program in the main campus at LIJ to meet with a genetic counselor by Zoom. The other thing too is being part of a big institution, if there's any difficult cases or challenging or unusual cases, we have a system-wide tumor board where all the medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgeons, everybody within the North system participate, Northwell system participates in everywhere from LIJ to Westchester to Lenox Hill to Huntington. And we go on once a month and we discuss cases and we, you know, um, review them. So it's not just isolated to the doctors in the Eastern region. We have a separate Eastern regional tumor board also. So I think there's wonderful benefit in of seeing the doctors out east for the treatment and the convenience, but there's also the added benefit of getting the input from other um, larger um, uh, institutions or larger areas within the institution. And I you're think not just lim really limited helpful. to the local, the local exactly. infrastructure. So, it's part of a bigger system in all absolutely. in every every case, really. Right. So we're discussing the latest innovations. We're discussing you know, the latest clinical trials. And for certain patients, um, for instance, I had a patient who was, um, had breast cancer, high risk and was pregnant. They actually had to go a little bit further to um, get their high risk um, care. But, you know, they had the benefit of having their surgery here, but then the benefit of a larger institution helping them with their perinatal care. Hi, this is Ellen Diogardi. I'm the director of events for the Express News Group. I'm also the president of the Sag Harbor Chamber of Commerce. Community really matters to all of us at this company. I know it's a good part of why I'm here. We've hosted more than 50 of our Express Sessions events in Southampton, East Hampton, and Sag Harbor, focusing on issues that matter most to residents of the East End. We bring the most important government and community leaders and topic experts together in one room, and we often find answers to complicated questions, and we grow stronger together. This all takes staff time and company resources, but it's our job, and I'm happy to say we really love our work. But we can't do it without our subscribers. If this kind of community work is important to you, you can support it by becoming a subscriber. To subscribe, visit 27east.com slash subscribe, and thank you. So Joe, out of the, when talking about medical researchers, what really struck you about what they talked about at the discussion? It's a combination of um, something that you mentioned um, on our first uh, interruption there was that Susie Roden, I think, um, mentioned how much easier it is to get to treatment and to, 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 to get done what you need to get done as a patient and how helpful that can be. I, I think that's an enormous step forward and an innovation all by itself for the region's patients. But you know, even beyond that, I think that one of the one of the things we forget about sometimes is the technology allows the doctors 
to get together and, and sort of interact with each other when they're examining patients locally in a way they couldn't do before. And, and I think that is an enormous help. It used to be if you got diagnosed with cancer, I think most people, and particularly people of means, would immediately start making plans to go to the city for treatment. And I just don't think that's necessary anymore. I think you get high quality, maybe top quality care uh, in our own region. And it has these connections, these tendrils that go all the way to the city. Um, you are being treated by the same folks uh, than you would be if you made the trip back and forth to the city every day. I think that was a scary part, a scary thing for a lot of people in the old days, if you got diagnosed with cancer out um, on the East End, you may have felt like if you, you know, wanted to tap into a larger universe of physicians that you sort of had to start over. You know, I think there was this thing where there wasn't a lot of communication between the region. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's overwhelming. Like maybe you had to like decide, am I going to get treated here locally or do I need to just say, forget it, I'm going to be in the city for the next year of my life to figure this out. Well, and, and, and I think that, that they pointed out, though, that, too, that, you know, when, when Joe talks about, you know, um, healthcare choices, you know, 20 years ago, you're talking about small, private, individual hospitals. But now you have, um, you know, you have Southampton Hospital, which is part of Stony Brook, and, and you have, um, you know, the Riverhead Hospital, which is part of Northwell Health and, you know, and, and NYU um, Langone and you know uh, Dr. Arena I think made the point that um, you know that he sees a patient in the Riverhead office but he's he he can immediately share the information about that patient whatever testing diagnosis tools they have and all that with with other doctors in in the city or through the entire network and and so you have this this technological innovation this technological communication advance that we've all experienced but the, the doctors are experiencing too that you're not just seeing a local cancer doctor in a, in a local um you know a local medical office that you that that they bring with them the wealth of of these you know umbrella organizations that they're working for I should say, too, that that's also true of Weill Cornell Medical, um, which which was not part of this panel, but they are sponsors for the right. series and they will be taking part in some future panels. But I think everything we're saying about um, Stony Brook and Northwell Health and NYU Langone is true of Weill Cornell as well. Yeah. I'm just wondering, like, because I, I, you know, why all the sudden is it because you know, did this have anything to do with a lot of people relocating to the East End during COVID? I'm just wondering why suddenly we are are uh, fortunate to have so many medical resources directed our way. Um, did that come up at all? You know, it's interesting. We talked about this in an editorial that came sort of post-event. Um, if you remember back in the a good 15 years ago at this point, the Burger Commission um, mm -hmm. started to do... Uh, a study of, of state state government yeah, it was a state push to try and consolidate so that all of the community hospitals and if you remember back then southampton hospital was really struggling year to year um just to stay afloat financially and the idea was back then the state was pushing smaller hospitals to join bigger uh healthcare systems and at the time we were all sort of like eh, is that a good thing i think it ended up being very prescient and those, you know, all of the hospitals now have these connections. And I think it sort of grows naturally. Once you have those roots in place, 
you start to see this kind of an infrastructure develop. And, and I think because New York pushed for that back then, and, and again, I think we were a little hesitant about it uh, at the time because we felt like we were losing some local control over Southampton Hospital. But what you end up with is a much more uh, well-developed infrastructure for providing care in an area that- A wider, that, that, a wider network. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in, in an area that was frankly very isolated ge geographically. And, and I think it has helped address that. And, 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 and I think it just was part of, you know, the way healthcare has evolved in that period too. It ended up benefiting this region as much as any. So the doctors also talked quite a bit about um, genetic testing, and we're sort of looking down down the road in the future of that, and some of the some of the things that are coming uh, coming our way. Yeah, with with genetics, it's interesting because genetics plays a role in both diagnosis and in treatment, and it's probably the area that has the most potential um, for growth. But we asked each of the doctors to talk a little bit about genetic testing, and we asked um, we talked with Susie Roden a little bit about you know, a lot of this stuff can start to get overwhelming if you're a patient because some of the technology and the science starts to get away from you. So how do you deal with that? So again, um, I'll just run through again so people keep in mind that, that our panelists were Dr. Jules Cohen of Stony Brook Medicine, Dr. Susan Lee of Peconic Bay Medical Center, uh, Dr. Francis Arena of NYU Langone Health, and Susie Roden, who's the head of uh, the coalitions, the Coalition for Women's Cancers at Stony Brook South. Dr. Cohen, uh, we, we're talking about genetic testing. You know, in 2003, we mapped, well, we, I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> Researchers mapped the human geome, genome, and that created a whole new strategy in dealing with cancer, right? Can you kind of briefly for the layman explain how genetics is being used to both test and, 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 and the role it plays in identifying people who may be at risk for cancers and also how it's helping with treatment. Sure. You know, so, um, you know, something like, you know, 30% of breast cancers are familial in, in origin, you know, that, that, you know, a patient will have a relatively strong family history of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, other types of cancer. But of those familial breast cancers, um, you, most of the time you do not detect any particular uh, abnormal uh, genetic mutation that predisposes to cancer. So roughly, you know, they say 4.7% of breast cancer patients will test positive for BRCA1 or BRCA2. And obviously there are certain situations where they're more likely to test positive. So for instance, if people are extremely young when they develop breast cancer, of course that's more likely to be associated with a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, particularly under the age of 45. Uh, if, if a patient has um, significant uh, a breast and ovarian cancer in first degree relatives, which would be a mother, uh, sister, or a daughter uh, with breast or ovarian cancer, then their risk of, of having a BRCA gene is much higher. Similarly, if uh, patients have had bilateral breast cancer on both sides, either at the same time or at two different points of time that that is high, more highly associated with a, with a BRCA mutation. And then even um, triple negative breast cancers, which is one of the less common subtypes, but a very you know, dangerous subtype that has a particular associ association with a, a BRCA1 mutations. So we have some sense of you know, who is at risk for BRCA mutations, who is at a low risk um, for a BRCA mutation, who needs to be tested, who maybe could defer testing. And then since, right, the human genome was mapped 
happened since um, uh, genetic testing has opened up. Now we have um, many more genes that we've identified that are not me personally, but you know the community has identified you know um, as uh, as uh, causative or related to cancer risk. You know, and and some of these are rarer than even the BRCA mutations, which are in and of themselves relatively rare. But you know, we can test for all sorts of other genes such as p53, p10, rb. There are lots of uh, you know sort of alphabet soup of genes that you know can predispose to cancer. But then when we identify those mutations, then it's very significant for both the patient themselves in terms of their treatment, what surgery they're going to have, um, what you know chemotherapy sometimes they're going to have, and also it's also very important for their families whether or not their children have to be. Um, tested, whether or not their children have to do any prophylactic procedures or take any prophylactic medications. Um, and then um, more recently, uh, we've actually used genetic testing to determine um, eligibility or sensitivity to certain therapies. So for instance, there is a class of therapies called PARP inhibitors, which are used in breast cancer and ovarian cancer, among other types of cancer. And in breast cancer, at least, um, the PARP inhibitors are most successful in patients who have a hereditary BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. So and that these PARP inhibitors are used both in the advanced setting in patients with metastatic disease and they can sometimes melt the disease away and, and people can have long-term remissions from use of these PARP inhibitors in the metastatic setting, but also in the early stage setting, which is sort of statistically more common because again, we do cure most of our early stage breast cancer patients, but the um, patients with a germline or hereditary BRCA1, BRCA2 mutation um, with a high-risk breast cancer can take a year of one of these PARP inhibitors, and it actually reduces their risk of developing metastatic disease in the future. So the genetics is, is important for both, you know, for uh, surgical planning, for um, uh, counseling and screening for uh, one's children, but also it can be directly um, related to uh, the treatment options that we have available. Dr. Arena, Dr. Cohen um, is talking about something that in, in doing a little bit of reading in preparation for this really stuck out to me that I wasn't aware of, was that genetics play a role both in finding uh, predisposition towards cancers, but they can also play a role in the treatment that the DNA of the tumor can actually have to do. You, you can, you can uh, design treatment for specific tumors using genetics. Is that correct? Yes. And what is going on here is, again, thinking of the analogy of a computer and that you buy a beautiful computer at Best Buy and everybody's happy except you want to know what is the software is inside of the computer. If you have the proper software, you can do anything you want. And what we're trying to unravel here is a really a bond between the genetic types of impactful mutations that might occur and the, sequ the sequential types of downstream effects that can cause a cancer to be very ornery. So if you know about a, a cancer's types of predispositions, if you don't know the genetics, you can do things that can make this very, very important and impactful. Dr. Cohen talked about the BRCA1 and BRCA2 and the use of PARP inhibitors. Well, this is extremely important. And I, I think we should mention that who might be a BRCA1 and BRCA2 patient. 
when this all started out 20, 30 years ago, we were looking at Ashkenazi Jewish ladies and gentlemen and saying, those are the patients that will probably have the BRCA1 and BRCA2 uh, mutations. Well, yeah, that's true. That was our first cohort of people that we've seen. But what is clear, and Dr. Cohen and Dr. Lee see this all the time, that was just the beginning. Every, it's a ubiquitous gene. It's a gene in every racial, ethnicity, every corner of the earth. A couple of years ago, a, 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 sta a new standard happened. In Chicago at the ASCO meeting, American Society of Clinical Oncology, the biggest cancer meeting in the world, 65,000 oncologists go. They unraveled a study in which they took a look at African-American ladies who had triple negative breast cancer. And they found that 23% were BRCA positive. Nobody expected that. So the answer to your question is that you must look. And I do believe when we start to hear the stories, when we start to take the proper history, then you start to go ahead and say, this lady, this gentleman needs to get genetic testing. And now it's easier than ever. There are a dozen companies that are out there. The price of this has fallen dramatically. And I can tell you, I haven't had a pushback. I don't know about Dr. Cohen and Dr. Lee. I haven't had a pushback from any insurance company saying, oh, you can't get genetic testing for that lady. No. Ask the questions, get the history, talk to the patient, and now see if you can put together this mosaic and unravel that computer. Um, but I do want to clarify one thing is there are, when we're back to the genetics part of it is, is there's been a lot of misconceptions that I think patients do have. Um, for instance, when I see a patient with a breast cancer diagnosis, they say, well, there's nobody in my family who's had it. So how can this be? But, you know, as it was mentioned by Dr. Cohen, the majority of patients with breast cancer have no family history. Not only that, there's a misconception that it's only the mother's side that matters. It's actually the mother's and the father's side in terms of getting an accurate history. Um, breast cancer and ovarian cancer is important, but a family history of pancreatic cancer and also prostate cancer, actually those are for the criteria for uh, bracket testing also. So um, as we do more and more um, genetic testings for, um, for cancers, um, we look at um, other, so for instance, as um, Dr. Cohen also mentioned, there's um, other genetic things, um, family histories of colon cancer, endometrial cancer. So it's actually a pretty broad thing. It's not just breast cancer. Um, the other thing too, I think there was a little bit, um, you had mentioned um, genetics in terms of the cancer genetic itself. It's, there's a difference between cancer, the genetics and genomics. And um, genomics is tumor, the tumor itself from profiling it and looking at certain characteristics to see whether or not they're eligible for certain types of types of treatment. In the past, it used to be just based upon the size of a tumor, if there was spread and they all got, all the patients got chemotherapy, but now we actually examine the genomic profiling of the tumor itself to determine who is going to benefit from which treatment. So genetics and genomics are different. And I just want to clarify that. The similarity being though, as Dr. Arena said, rather than using a B-52 bomber to attack that tumor, you find out ways to go at it in a, in a much more specific way, right? Absolutely, you're individualizing.
just wanted to say um, and, and building on um, what the other participants have, have talked about, um, there's a, a, a procedure called next generation sequencing. And that's basically, you know, again, um, uh, looking at the very fine molecular details that are underpinning the growth of a cancer. I actually just gave a talk uh, in our own Stony Brook Oncology Grand Rounds yesterday uh, on this very topic. And basically, um, particularly in the metastatic setting, um, although I think this kind of thing will filter to the early stage setting eventually as the, as the cost comes down and so on. But now we relatively routinely will send um, a patients tumor biopsies for next generation sequencing. And then we'll find out essentially all the relevant molecular abnormalities that drive the growth of that tumor, you know, and again, so some of these, you know, we, we essentially, there are two basic kinds of genes that, you know, that predispose or cause a cancer to grow. You know, there are these so-called uh, oncogenes, which are pro-growth genes, you know, essentially we think of them as the accelerator pedal and there are tumor suppressor genes, which are anti-growth genes, you know, that protect cells against abnormal growth and division and so on. And those are more like the brake pedal. And cancer is caused by um, dysregulation of both the oncogenes where they're turned on and they, they you know, they, it's like having a, a brick on your accelerator pedal and it just, you can't stop the car. Um, and also you have a loss of function of your tumor suppressor genes. And that's like the brakes aren't working anymore. And again, the car is just careening out of control. And so we now know based on the next generation sequencing that we can routinely do for any patient, you know, what are the oncogenes and what are the tumor suppressors that are um, underlying the growth of this cancer. And some of the time, not all the time that this gives us um, particular um, clinical options, you know, that we have certain, you know, drugs that target specific oncogenes and we have certain drugs perhaps that could be used in the context of the loss of, of function of certain tumor suppressor genes, you know, and CRISPR, um, just to get back to that, again, I'm not so familiar with it, but I imagine CRISPR could be used to um, eventually uh, develop what's called gene therapy, which would be a way of replacing a dysfunctional tumor suppressor gene um, and uh, and essentially putting the brakes back into the to the car so that you can slam on them and you can stop the the car from careening into a tree essentially or in the case of cancer you know to stop the cancer from growing uh, in an uncontrolled fashion and spreading throughout the body and ultimately being lethal there are so many things that are probably ahead of that curve Dr. Cohen just mentioned some, Dr. Lee just mentioned some, that we have to really go after. In patients that have metastatic disease, that means disease that has spread to some other parts of the body, I would say, I'm certain Dr. Cohen would agree with me, all those patients should get next generation sequencing to know what they really have. What is very interesting about breast cancer is that often we see that they're heterogeneous. In other words, what we might have seen in the original biopsy of the breast cancer, now in the metastatic setting, we find a whole different thing. We might find that what was a HER2 positive estrogen progesterone negative patient now is estrogen positive. Or that we find out they have another type of mutation, like a PI3K mutation, which opens up another door for a different drug. So it is so important that as medical oncologists and even as surgical oncologists, 
that we think beyond what was just the old pathology. Okay, what the patient had, ductal cancer, that's nice, that's right, okay, but now what else? So we have gone a long way farther than even a decade ago. So everyone I would think that has metastatic disease, we're challenging. We often do another biopsy. We will go to Dr. Lee, can you possibly do another biopsy? If we have to, we could do a bineedal biopsy, a core biopsy. Sometimes we have to do excisional, we'll call in a breast surgeon. But what is so important is that that could open up doors. We have newer medicines, newer technologies, and we understand the pathways, how these tumors try to evade the, the control that we oncologists try to go after. Dr. Arena, we're running out of time now, but I'm really intrigued by how healthcare has really expanded towards us in the last 10 years or so. And it seems to be gaining in, in momentum in doing so. Again, we have four very good health systems on, on the South Fork right now and involved in this program that we're doing. Um, there was a time where I think a lot of people saw uh, advanced medicine as being a very centralized kind of a thing where you had to go somewhere else for it. Is this going to be a trend that continues? Are we going to see more and more options for treatments and, and, and different kinds of, of medical procedures in our region uh, that we won't have to do so much traveling to get the best care? You know, Joe, I, I think that is absolutely true. I think the commitments by Stony Brook, by Northwell, by NYU, to make this a reality is, is right in front of us. NYU has just uh, taken over the shepherdship of Brookhaven Hospital, and that will have a metamorphosis into a major center in the next few years. But what's important here is the idea that people should get treated where they live. And that the, that the idea that we have now physicians that are well-trained, that have passion for the people that they serve, and that they will go to their communities. You know, we, we need, one of my pet peeves is how can we get research into the underserved? How do we get research and the abilities to offer people to be on clinical trials in the suburban areas, in the rural areas? We do not have to just wave a banner, oh, come to us. No, we're coming to them. And that is so darn important. And I, in that same breath, I give you guys a shout out. This news media that put on this show, what are you doing? You're breaking down barriers. It's no longer, let's not talk about Mrs. Jones's breast cancer because nobody wants to hear it. We're scared to say it. You're bringing it out front because now Mrs. Jones is not afraid to say it. She's not afraid to go to a Dr. Lee or Dr. Cohen or to myself or any of the other great physicians that are around. But that is the point. It's a community effort. It's not just the medical centers. It is those that are the supportive service and the coalitions like Susie has. It is the news medias that go out and say, let's talk about this. There are things that are happening. I once wrote a book about five years ago with uh, Tanya um, Bastianich Manueli called Reflections of the Breast. It's about art and breast cancer. 3,000 years ago, we had our first idea that breast cancer existed in the 
in the, the Edward Smith papyrus. It was buried. Case number 54. Doctor, get your hand off that chest. You can't do anything for that patient. You had Michelangelo painting. You had Rembrandt doing Bathsheba's breath where the left breast had breast cancer. Nobody knew it. Nobody wanted to talk about it. But they made certain it was there for someone eventually to see it. You guys are doing the same, but you're saying we can talk about it. We have physicians, we have institutions where they're in the neighborhood now. And they're trying to make a difference. So that it's the whole thing. It's not just us. It's you. It's you. That's humbling to hear that. Thank you, doctor. We appreciate that. So, so all in all, we're feeling pretty optimistic about our healthcare options on the east end of Long Island, right? Yeah, I mean, in the editorial that we wrote post-event, we pointed out, look, everything's not rosy. I mean, healthcare is still expensive. I think the region still has some issues when it comes to primary care physicians, things like that. Um, there are some issues with healthcare on the east end. Don't get me wrong. However, I think that there's a lot to be happy about, and I think that when you look at where we sit today. The innovations that have come down, um, you know, at an international level, especially when we're talking about treating women's cancers, have really benefited women on the East End. And um, these are the kinds of innovations that are that we're we're exploring in this series, and we're going to continue to explore in the next two events that are coming up. Uh, but I just thought this was a, a, a really good launching point for the series, uh, and and I thought that the panelists we had had a lot of very, very encouraging things to say. Uh, a cancer diagnosis is always terrifying, but I think it is far from a death sentence these days. There are, there are so many things that can be done now. And I, I think that having to navigate that is a challenge all by itself for patients, but it's a, it's a challenge that has some real promise um, on, on in, as an end result. So I'm really happy that we were, took a little time to talk about this and, and I hope we provided a little bit of, um, a little bit of support to women who might be going through this and, and, you know, who, who need to be reminded too, that detection and diagnosis is crucial in, in getting that kind of care. And I think October is breast cancer awareness month, right? It, it is absolutely. So good timing for that. So Joe, tell us about the next session of the Innovating Healthcare on the East End series and when that's coming up. It is on Thursday, October 20th at 6 p.m. And it's um, it's going to be, you can, you can sign on for free and watch it live. Uh, we also post the video after the fact on the website. And I believe the second topic that we're going to be discussing is uh, the treatment of mental health issues on the East End, which again, is, is an area that, that has been an area where there have been real um, concerns about the lack of resources, but I think that's changing now. That's something we'll discuss. I think that, that the technology and the innovations um, in communication technology come into play for that. So that's something we'll discuss. And then do you have a date for the third in the series? Hospital leaders discuss the future of medicine on the East End, and that's 6 to 7 p.m. on November 10th. That's Zoom as well. And then there will be a public event um, at the Clubhouse on Daniels Hole Road on November 18th. That's a Friday, yeah. And that's at six o'clock. And I believe we're going to be presenting some uh, some awards there and, and uh, just sort of celebrating uh, all the stuff we're talking about in the series. 
a gathering, a wrap up, we'll be recognizing um, certain medical professionals. So the next two sessions will be by Zoom and then the one after that will be at the clubhouse. It's nice to be talking about uh, positive things for a change. So be there. Well, thank you guys. And we'll see you at the at the next uh, discussion. I'll be there. <laughs>27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sacharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.